every designer is a social impact designer. If you are a designer at Nike or you're a designer at Apple, you're having a tremendous impact, not just on people, but on the environment. So having to define it and separate it would be detrimental because we all have an impact over somebody else in our life. You are listening to Change Lab, conversations on transformation and creativity. I'm Lauren Buckman, president of Art Center College of Design. Mariana Prieto is a designer and an agent of social change. A 2012 Art Center graduate in product design, she has, in a very short period of time, built a remarkable career addressing the needs of underserved communities around the globe. Currently, Mariana is a TED resident. She is also deep in the development of Design for Wildlife, a collective she founded with a mission to support wildlife conservation. As she makes clear in our discussion, her interest in this new enterprise concentrates, intriguingly, on issues that emerge out of the particular relationship between animals and human beings. Previously, Mariana served as Design Innovation Lead for the International Rescue Committee. There, she led teams working on a range of challenges, from the Ebola crisis in West Africa to refugee resettlement in the United States. Over the course of our spirited conversation, we explored the origins of her twin passions for animals and design, her work on an alliance between once-endangered crocodiles and their human neighbors, and her ideas for the next phase of her creative journey, forged at a TED conference in Tanzania. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Mariana Prieto. So let's begin by talking a little bit about your background and where you're from and make our way to understanding you as a, a creative individual. But first, uh, where are you from? I am originally from Colombia. Um, I grew up in Bogota. And I grew up to two very loving but very different parents. Um, that I, and I think that their philosophies really shaped in many ways who I am today. My mother is a person who believes that if you change one person's life, you have done enough, that that is what you're here for. And she runs a nonprofit institution for underprivileged deaf children in Bogota. So she's always been very entrepreneurial. So she's affected many lives. Though. So she's affected many, many, many yeah. lives. Yeah, yeah. But she believes in the one at a time philosophy. I get it. Yeah. My father, on the other hand, believes that by changing policy and by changing things in a large scale, you could affect millions of lives in one go and that it was worth the hard efforts to get there. And I believe both, absolutely. And I think my work has been strongly shaped by both of these approaches. A lot there that I want to trace, but let's hear about you as a child a little bit. Who were you? <laughs> as a kid, I was a very dorky little kid who would read all day and was completely obsessed with animals. Animals were my entire existence. I would get from from school and I would come running down the stairs and grab animal magazines and then I would cut out the animals and then I would make my own little notebooks with my these animal pastings in them. 
I had a dog called Noah, and I was never very religious, but in my mind, Noah was a being who was surrounded by animals all the time. <laughs> uh, truly. I'm particularly interested in if you can convey some sense of who that kid was in relationship to animals. Why did she love animals so much? What was it about the way you saw animals or the animal world? Can you convey something about that? You know, when I was younger, when I was, I don't know, maybe in like sixth grade, seventh grade, I didn't have many friends. I felt that people were complicated. People you need to learn how to read. And what you say is not often right. And like human relationships can be complicated. Animals were always genuine. Animals are authentic to how they're feeling and who they are. And they're there for you. They're also just fascinating. The fact that they're made to adapt to their environment. That predators have great eyesight and have great feeling in, the, in their nerves to know when there's movement. But then the ones who are being eaten are the ones who are, they're really good at hiding. They have feet that are made so that they're very quiet on the ground. Like the way that animals adapt to their environment is just fascinating from a biological perspective. Mm -hmm. One of the animals that I find most fascinating is actually sharks because they've adapted very little in comparison to others. They were just these perfect engineered animals in the past. And they're still quite perfect today. Hmm. Moving forward, then, how did you find your way to Art Center? I didn't know about it until I had already started college. So after I graduated in Colombia, all I wanted to do was design cars. And I left to go to Italy and be a car designer. Can I interrupt for just a second? Is Absolutely. What sparked your interest in designing cars? Well, I should go back by saying I had two obsessions when I was little. Uh-huh. One was animals, which was by far the biggest. And the second one was cars. Cars are just fascinating. Why? It's the same reason I love sharks. They're engineering masterpieces mm. that take years of work and evolution to get them just right. Mm. And they're absolutely beautiful to watch move. I actually think it might be really helpful. We have a variety of different kinds of listeners to this podcast. And some really don't know that much about design or design thinking. So let's go deeper into what design is. The first question I would ask you is, what is research in design? What does that mean? I'll use an example because I feel like it will ground it a little bit. Years ago, we were tasked with reducing the teenage pregnancy rates of Zambia, this country. At the time, I was working with IDEO.org, and we wanted to understand what life is like for a teenager in Zambia, not just what life is like for them around a family planning clinic, but what is their relationship with their parents? What do they do on the weekends? What is their relationship with their friends? And so when we first started doing research, it was just about having conversations with them, and we played games with them. But... Once we started to understand it, then we also brought in a lot of our own experiences as teenagers. And if you think back to your years of teenagers, especially talking about sex, you remember how awkward and how uncomfortable and how horrifying it was to have to talk about it with adults. And so our first prototypes were based on both their experiences and our experiences. So, for example, we thought, okay, wouldn't it be fantastic if we did like 
an underground secret thing because teenagers like things that are a little bit dangerous and are cool. So traditionally, if you have an idea like this, you could raise money for it, you could come up with a whole plan and then go implement it. But instead, what we did was overnight, we just bought a box of condoms, we wrapped them in cardboard and we made these beautiful packages and we went out to clubs and we tested it. And we tested what it would be like to just leave them in the bathroom with different signs and to give them out and to just see and observe how uh, teenagers were interacting with them. And this is prototyping. And this was prototyping. Right. And in one night, we realized that it was a horrible idea. And it was horrible because nobody touched them. Because what they said was, if I get caught with something that looks like a secret and my parents see it, I'm going to be in a lot of trouble. And it took us one night to understand that. And so we pivoted really quickly. And the next day we did the same thing, but we made it colorful and pink and bold and polka dotted. And we made it fit with what their clothes and attitude and everything else looks like. And within one more day, then we saw girls who were holding these pamphlets in the middle of the street, reading it with their mothers, absolutely transformed. And we would have never learned that without having tried it. So on the first night, the prototype broke. Mm -hmm. You saw where the break was and you went at it again with the information that you learned from that. Exactly. So you iterated that much further along the way. And then we saw that it needs to be hidden in plain sight. It needs to be bold and beautiful and colorful and loud. So it looks like they're supposed to have it. So then when their mother catches them with it, they can say like, oh, yeah, they just gave me that at school. Can you reflect for us how that is an example of design thinking for you? Design has two very strong components to it. One is the actual methodology. The methodology has a beginning, a middle, and an end. And it is very linear and not linear at all. So it's very linear in that you need to first figure out what is the problem that you're trying to solve. If you solve for the wrong problem, you're wasting your time. So design first starts by doing a rigorous understanding of the challenge. Then after that, you move to research and prototyping and iterating and what we call synthesis, which is this complex void of confusion that at the end yields ideas and results. And I, the synthesis is usually the hardest part of this methodology to explain because there is absolutely no linear process within it. It is just a way of breaking down information in many different ways over and over and over and over again until you get something out of it. And it's painful sometimes and it's confusing. And it's usually what people who want to, to feel like they're in control really don't like about it because you need to lose control in order to find your way out again. It's one of the most beautiful parts of the process, but it's also quite painful. Mm -hmm. But outside of the process, it's also a way of approaching information. You need to be flexible. You need to be flexible to say that even though you've put a lot of hours into something and then you realize it didn't work, that you can throw it away and start over. Design is about making tough choices for a beautiful end result. Right. How do you define social impact design? I have never been asked that before, believe it or not. Interesting, because it's so core to your work. The reason why I find that challenging is because every designer is a social impact designer. 
if you are a designer at Nike or you're a designer at Apple, you're having a tremendous impact, not just on people, but on the environment. You're having an impact on consumers. You're having an impact on the people that are watching your ads. And you're having an impact with your own employees. HR practices within companies are still social impact. So I think in part is having to define it and separate it would be detrimental because we all have an impact over somebody else in our life. Let's move on to the Arabelle Center through the uh, International Rescue Committee. Can Hmm. you tell that story? Yeah, the Arabelle Center is an exciting place. David Miliband, the president of the International Rescue Committee, wanted to find a way to bring innovation into humanitarian aid. Humanitarian aid, especially for an organization of that magnitude, can be at times slow or bureaucratic or have a lot of red tape. And so Arabelle started as an innovation center that could bring creative thinking in a faster way. Actually, our mission was to deliver double impact in half of the time with half of the resources. And we would partner with different departments within the IRC. I worked on a vaccine project during the Ebola outbreak in West Africa with the health department. We worked with the U.S. departments for the refugee crisis. So we're redesigning the way that refugees were entering the United States and what their experience would be at landing Mm. um, and how those next three, six, 12 months unfold for them. And it's just great to see that you can always bring a different way of looking at things, even at a very, very large and established place like the IRC. So to go a bit deeper into that, maybe if you could talk about how design participated in the struggles with the Ebola crisis, or if you can talk about how design specifically addressed this issue of refugee experience, it would, again, give us more specifics. It would help us understand what design has to do with any of this stuff. (laughs) When... We took on the challenge of redesigning the refugee experience in the United States. It was daunting because refugee experience is extremely broad. You're talking about an entire country. You're talking about thousands of people in many different cities. It could be housing. It could be job opportunities. It could be language. It could be something as simple as where to go buy shampoo, right? Like there's all of these different sides to it. Exactly. So what I loved about working at Airbell is that it was a great mix between design, which understood the perspective of the refugees. So we did all of the work actually alongside them, doing interviews across the country with data analysts, which was fascinating because data analysts could help us understand From the challenges that we found and that we thought design could help, whether they were worthwhile. So, for example, through the design process, talking to refugees, we found that a great number of the people we were talking to had amazing careers back home. They were lawyers, they were doctors, they uh, were engineers, 
that once they moved here, they weren't able to uh, work in that field because they didn't have the credentials. Right. And so we thought recredentialing was a really interesting challenge to take on. But because we had a data analyst on our team, we were able to understand that actually only 11% or so of refugees would have that problem. So why don't we focus on a different challenge that can have a bigger impact? So that was a great addition. And then we go back again to design, which is, again, the human experience. And through that process, we found that every time we went into an interview, we would go in people's homes because we always do interviews in people's homes. And then as soon as we were done with the interview, right before we were going to say goodbye, they would say, wait, before you go, can you read my mail? And they would bring out a big bag of mail. And so we would sit there and sort through it and help them understand that, you know, there are some envelopes that are white and say urgent in red letters, but it's actually spam and you can throw that away. And there are these white, simple, non-denominational letters that are actually extremely important and they relate to your case and they're from the government. Mail is a really difficult thing to understand if you don't read English or if you're not from here. And it actually had a huge repercussion on people's experience here. Because if you're sent a letter saying, we can't send you your welfare check right now because you're missing this document. If you don't read that and you forget about it, then you're going to lose all of the welfare benefits that you need to be able to give your family. So one of the things that we designed was how do you find a safe but effective way to be able to support people through their mail? <laughs> it's fascinating. And let me ask you this question about that experience. Because as you told the story, you said, so we're asking all these questions. We're, we think we're heading in this direction and we're trying to assemble all that information. And as we're leaving, the real issue comes up mm. or the happy accident occurs, which designers I know love to talk about. And one of the things that fascinates me so much, because I think actually happy accidents come more out of structure than we think they do, yeah. right? So how do you look at that moment? I mean, here you were going in a particular direction, and it was really something that you hadn't anticipated at all that became the point of focus for you. I love those moments. They are so exciting. And when you're doing an interview, we look for them specifically. We know that as soon as things are over and people's barriers come down is when a lot of genuine feelings come out. Like you said, there is a lot more structure to these happy accidents than it sounds like. Mm -hmm. For example, we'll usually end an interview half an hour before we actually want to end it. We'll say, thank you so much. It was really oh, great talking to you. Um, you know, do you have any questions? And we just end it. That's when something clicks. And all of a sudden it's like, actually, this is horrible. And <laughs> the, real, the real heart comes out. Okay, so let's go into some of your specific projects. And one of the first projects I would love for you to talk about is the award-winning washer-dryer that you were involved with here at Art Center. And if you could just tell that story a little bit and the solution you came up with, I think it's a wonderful illustration of much of what you've been talking about. That was an exciting project that was part of a Design Matters program. And we went to Peru to understand how to improve access to clean water for the people of Peru. And once 
we graduated. We had this washer dryer, which is really a washer wringer because it doesn't quite dry, but it it wrings clothes enough to make it really quickly for them to dry, which was solving the issue of uh, clothes becoming moldy because if they're hung when they're too wet in these wet areas and they would become moldy, people had respiratory problems, all this stuff. So describe the product for the listeners. So this is a washer dryer that fits about a five-person family load of clothes for two days. So it's small, but... It's um, a barrel. And it's a barrel that you sit on, and it works without electricity or running water. It works with water, of course, but not. it's not connected to plumbing, which was a big difference. It was a big change. And what was exciting to see with this product is that it did change a little bit of the behaviors around laundry. Like when we were testing it in Mexico years later, we realized that for the first time there were men doing laundry because it was a woman's job before, but because now it was this thing that you could sit on and you could grab a beer and sit there and pedal this thing, that it was now okay for a man to do it as well. Right, right. I can just give you my experience when I first saw it, and it was just incredibly inspiring to me that here was a rather simple product, rather inexpensive product, which was essentially a barrel, not hard to get, that you fill with water <laughs> with a small chamber inside, right? Mm -hmm. You can put the clothes in, you close the barrel, the person who's doing the washing sits down and can, as you say, sit and have a beer and talk to people while pushing that pedal up and down. And that's agitating the clothes and washing them. And then it drains. And then it drains. And what we found is that people use that water for something else. So they would use uh -huh. it to wash the floors, for example. Uh -huh. And then you refill it and, or you just turn that mechanism into a spin mechanism. And that same product is now drying the clothes and spinning mm -hmm. them out. That's right. Okay, so let's transition now to your current work. Let's <laughs> get back to talking about animals and if you could tell us a little bit about the design for wildlife conservation, what that's about and where it came from. I think I know where it came from in your heart, but where it came from in terms of the circumstances of your career. I basically did a design process without truly... To design the business, really. To design the project, right, right. Yeah. And so first it was about research. And so... Months later, I started to talk about my work with people and seeing that we can change the way that people behave by designing for them. And when it really clicked was if you look at conservation issues, a great majority of them exist because of the way that people act. People's behaviors have a humongous impact over wildlife. Mm. And by designing for people, we can protect wildlife. That's when it all made sense mm -hmm. because that's what I know how to do. <laughs> and then you knew the problem you were solving for. Exactly. Right. And so Design for Wildlife started as a collective in order for us to support wildlife organizations to solve challenges that had to do with people. So a lot of it was either with communities that organizations are working with down on the ground so communities that live with wildlife every day, communities that have lions eating their goats, which means that they're eating their livelihood, elephants eating crops, but also with the general public and how you talk about conservation to the general public, how to get more Kenyans to visit national parks, 
the great majority of Kenya hasn't been to a national park. Mm. And it's one of their most beautiful, greatest assets that moves the Kenyan economy. And you do that to increase their sensitivity to wildlife? It's to increase sensitivity to wildlife. It's to be able to shape policy. It's to be able to bring the conservation conversation into a higher degree. Is there a specific project or specific example that you can offer us that really illustrates what the Design for Wildlife Conservation Project is about? Yes, they're all in progress. So I don't have final solutions for you yet because of where we're at. But there is a crocodile called the Orinoco crocodile. In 2015, there were only 200 of these crocodiles left, which is nothing. It is one of the most endangered crocodiles in the world. And it lives between Colombia and Venezuela. Uh, But there's a great organization that found a way to reproduce this crocodile. And so within two years, they had now reached more than 400, which is super exciting. The problem, though, is that the communities that live with these crocodiles, talking about fishing communities, you're talking about everybody who lives in the area, interacts with these crocodiles in very various degrees. So basically, there's one community that sees them somewhat often, and they know how to coexist with it. They understand the behavior of the crocodiles. Don't go trampling their nests because there's a mother around and she's not going to be happy about it. But there's another community where the crocodile has been extinct since the 60s. So all they remember is stories of their grandparents talking about this river monster. It's actually quite big. It can grow up to 20 feet long. So it is a big animal. And you know how legends go. The only things that will survive are the scary, horrible stories of these, these animals. So our challenge is how do you find value for the crocodile? from the community itself so that they can fall in love with the animal again. So we're not coming in as educators saying, this is why you need to love it. And this is what will happen if it disappears. That only works to a certain extent. If you want these solutions to last for a very long time, they need to come from the community themselves. So I can give you an example of something fascinating that that happened. And it's that there's this assumption that ranchers are always going to be the toughest with predators because these big animals eat their cattle. They eat their animals. And so there was this assumption, of course, that they were going to be really difficult to deal with. But by going in and talking to them, they were actually the ones that were most excited. They even said, can we have some eggs? Can we grow some of these crocodiles? And it was odd. (laughs) And digging deeper into it, they said, listen, I can build a big fence to stop a crocodile from coming in and eating my kettle. But there is no fence that I can build that will stop the thieves from swimming across the river and stealing my cattle every night. What they need are guard dogs in the river. And they need protectionists from people. So we found the most unlikely ally, not by education, but by understanding their perspective. Thank you. Great, great story. One of the questions that I find really interesting to talk to guests about is their sense of change. And as you know, half the uh, Art Center mission is influence change. And what really compels me is how artists and designers think about, talk about, define the change that they influence in the world. Mm. How does Mariana define change or think about the change that she affects in the world? I'll answer that by telling you where I want to go. I would love for design for wildlife to 
fail because organizations decided to embed their own designers inside of their own organizations. Design for Wildlife's purpose is not to actually grow and succeed as a company, but more to inspire wildlife organizations to want to have innovation inside of the work, to realize that this is something that they can have and this is something that designers want to do. I can't tell you how many emails I get every single week from creatives who say, I am so happy to have found this. I want to work in conservation, but I don't know how. So the demand for doing the work is there. My goal is to build demand on the other side for conservation to want it. So what I'm focused on now in the short term is to get amazing case studies that can be shown as examples of how design can really make a difference and then hopefully have other people do it even better than me. One other thing just to get, you know, Mariana's thoughts on, I like to test certain philosophical issues of design education with Mm -hmm. people who have graduated from Art Center. So as you know, at Art Center, we throw students in the deep end. They got to start doing the projects before they talk about it much. And the phrase that I've developed in my own work, they have to make things to know them. Mm, I love that. Reflect on that in terms of your experience and how it makes sense to you. I think without that, I would not be right here right now doing design for wildlife. When I first quit my job, I emulated a lot of what Art Center did, which was throwing you into the deep end, giving you a brief, which in my case was just as vague as many of the Art Center classes, which is design something for water. Okay. Um, In my case, the brief was be a creative person related to And it was a tall challenge. I went through a lot of different iterations of this. They didn't last very long. But at some point, my dream was to be a dog groomer at Petco. (laughs) (laughs) I really went all over the place. And I did this one exercise that was the big pushing point (laughs) to where I am now, which is um, I went to a conference with my husband. And we decided to help each other out in how we were going to talk to people. This was a TED conference, actually. It was TED Global. We were in Tanzania. I had just quit my job. Um, My husband had just made some big changes in his company, so he was just starting to change the way he talked about it. So we decided to write each other's introductions to other people. And so we took out a piece of paper, and it said, um, what would you say if an Uber driver asks you what you do? What do you say if a friend of a friend asks you what you do what do you say if somebody asks you what to do but you don't really have time to talk very much you just need to answer and then kind of run away because you're late for something and what would you do if and then we inserted who would be the most amazing person to come talk to you like who's the dream person here what would you do if they asked you what you do and we wrote each other's which was an eye-opening experience it was fantastic. But the best part of it was that we kept changing it over and over throughout the whole conference. Until the very end of that conference, I realized that when I was talking about wildlife conservation and how innovation could fit in, I was the most excited. Mm. I had people really engage with me. I realized that I had a lot more to say than about doing this for dog shelters. And funny enough, it was that exercise that was 
all right, let's go with this. And it was very similar to the art center experience in that, you know, you're given this brief and you just go for it and you do this research and right, right. it takes and, you places. Right. And we don't talk a lot about it first around here, right? And we don't talk about it very much <laughs> right. at all. Right. Just like go in go and start to. the making. Yeah. 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 Go do, go act. And, and then your questions in the conversation, I don't like what you were saying earlier, born of that process of the doing of the making of the discovery. Exactly. And then you just go with it. What have I forgotten to ask you? Is there something that you feel like you want to say? I just have an instinct about that. I don't do that often with this, but I have an instinct that there's something else you want to talk about. Is there? Actually, there is something that I'm going through right now that has a lot to do with Art Center. While I was at Art Center, every single critique I ever got, which was every day, I would in some way hear from my teachers that I needed to learn how to draw. You can't draw, you can't draw, you can't draw. When I was a little kid in high school, I was the one who would know how to draw. I was known for being the one who drew. Of course, once you get to Art Center, the level of craft was just far and beyond and I could not draw to save my life here. And it was so frustrating. And all I heard was mileage, mileage. You need more miles. You need 10,000 hours, hours right. of drawing. And I was like, ah, oh, it was painful. <laughs> However, a couple of years ago, I had the opportunity to become an illustrator by saying yes to somebody who asked me if I wanted to illustrate a graphic novel. And I jumped into it and I produced the first three pages and I showed them to her and I saw her face of like, Ugh, OK, this is not a good idea. <laughs> you really can't draw. And after drawing over and over and over, I have now got into a place where I have become an illustrator and I'm making a graphic novel with a National Geographic adventurer who's amazing. And it's written by a 13-year-old girl and it's about wildlife conservation. The idea is to just have more people talk about conservation, not because you feel like you have to or it's educational, just because it's fun. Right. But the reason I brought it up is because of what you mentioned of courage and taking leaps and sometimes ideas that seem stupid turn out to be great, which was saying yes to being an illustrator when I couldn't draw. I'm proud to come back and tell you that I finally learned how to draw. <laughs> how great. That's, that's a great story. Great place to end. Thanks so much for your time. Thank you so much. for your great work. And we're incredibly proud of you. Thank you so much, Lauren. This was wonderful. Change Lab is produced and recorded at Art Center College of Design. I'd like to extend a special thanks to our small but mighty production staff, producer Christine Spines, co-producer Luis Silva, editor Emily Van Bergen, and post-production supervisor and production consultant Christopher Olin. <laughs>